Today on the show, we are talking with Tim Stobbs about his book, Free at 45, How to Retire Early and Happy. Welcome to the Simple Money Solutions Podcast, where we focus on your money from a Canadian perspective. This podcast is produced weekly and released every Monday. Show notes for every episode can be found at livelifesimple.ca. Now let's get on with the show. Hey everyone, I'm your host Courtney, and joining with me today is my co-host Trevor and our very special guest, Tim Stobbs. Tim is a creator and mind behind the website, Canadian Dream, free at 45, where he blogs about his retire at 45 and happiness philosophies. As mentioned in the introduction, today we'll be talking to Tim about his book, Free at 45, How to Retire Early and Happy. Hi, Tim. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's an absolute pleasure to have you on our show. Hi. It's great to be here. Thank you. So, Tim, let's jump right in. Um, Because your book is about retiring early, can you tell us a little bit about yourself to provide our listeners with some perspective? What do you do for a living? Are you married? Do you have any kids? And what area of the country do you live in? I'm an engineer. I live in Regina, Saskatchewan. I'm married with uh, two boys. So, Tim, just just one follow-up question. Can you bridge the gap between being an, an engineer and all this wealth of knowledge you've gained on personal finance and retirement? How did you sort of get from one to the other? Well, this one actually started about oh, 10 years ago almost now is when I actually started my blog. So in fact, in blog world, I'm pretty much ancient history almost. <laughs> I <didn't get> <laughs> so I started off like everyone else, relatively clueless with no idea how to do anything and just kind of started reading a lot of material and learning as I went. Uh, I've always had an interest in personal finance. And so that just sort of slowly developed over a number of years until I decided to uh, take my hand at writing my own book and the sheer frustration of I couldn't find anything that was on early retirement in Canada and happiness. It seemed like the three were never written together. You know, I can't agree with you more. The Canadian piece on retirement is very hard to find. So where would you say you are on your retirement journey right now? Right now, I'm probably in the last few years of the savings accumulation phase until I flip over to drawing down some money and uh, kind of shifting my gears a little bit as I've gone along and abandoned the full retirement thing and shifted over to more of a semi-retirement scenario where I'll probably work a little bit part-time on some uh, hobby slash interest things and earn some money from that as I go along. Okay, well, that sounds uh, like a road I, I actually want to go down. So, Tim, jumping into Chapter 1, it's titled, Why Do You Want to Retire?, Uh, Can you tell us a little bit about the job you described in the beginning of your book? And was this job the event that really motivated you to contemplate early retirement? The job was part of the motivation. It was back shortly after university. I started a job in the oil and gas industry. And at the time, it was one of those jobs with ludicrously long days and uh, not exactly enough pay to compensate for the hours involved. I think I worked it out once and I was getting paid like not much more above minimum wage depending on the particular stretch of a job. So it was just like, mm, this isn't working so well. So ironically, as much as I disliked that job, it was a great education of everything not to do again for every job afterwards. No, so, And I've, I've definitely been in a job like that myself and it, it can be a pretty dark world. Oh, it can be. And so that just helped the motivation to start thinking about other avenues and stuff. And then early retirement came out of this as just a, I've always had an interest in personal finance. I've sort of evolved matching those two concepts together to, oh, let's maybe start a blog and try to figure out how to do this myself. Like you said before, 10 years of blogging, you are you were at the infancy of this. And there's a ton of information out there that you've, you've put together. And I love the Canadian angle on most of it. That is hard to find. 
Very, very. And that's what I think the Canadian personal finance world needs more of is this personal experiences and the angle and avenue you've been taking. In your book, you talk about tracking every damn penny. Can you tell us why this is important and some of the tools you use to accomplish that? Well, I use the term tracking every damn penny because one of the primary things about actually out when you need to retire is actually knowing how much you're spending right now. And I can't remember the reference on the top of my head, but I came across something that like, oh, 80% of people actually don't know exactly what they're spending month to month. They have a ballpark estimate that they may have some leftover in the account at the end of the month. But other than that, they have no bloody idea where it's coming from or where it's going to. I couldn't agree with you more. I, I, most of the people I know, that's how they live month to month. Oh, no, it, it kind of makes sense in the default state. Like, it, it, for a lot of people, it's not that important. But if you're going to retire early, it's one of the critical elements to have a good history of at least a few years of spending data so you really know what you're trying to accomplish going forward. Um, as for tools, one of my favorite ones is actually just Mint Canada, where you can link all your accounts together in one spot and pull the information together. I find it's really easy because it does at least a preliminary cut for category making categories from the spending. So while it might be 100% accurate, it at least gets your foot in the door relatively easily. Okay, and when you say Mint, you're talking about like the, there's a smartphone app and there's a, a web portal, that, that Mint? Yeah, that's the one. Okay, okay. I, I've, I'm sort of flip-flopping between, um, uh, I've been using Quicken, which is becoming an out-of-date piece of software. Yeah. So I, I've been wanting to transition to something, and there's a few out there. I'll definitely give that one a look. I'd recommend giving it a try. I found it's uh, relatively straightforward after the initial setup. Uh, linking some of your accounts is a little quirky in some of them, I've noticed, because the password requirements have evolved a little bit. So as that's happened, I've had to reset them a couple times, but it works. Okay. And from a Canadian perspective, uh, it, it is it set up to link to most Canadian banks, have you found, or is it... Most of the major ones, like the only ones I have not had a direct link on is like my pension plan, which honestly is largely Saskatchewan based. So case, yeah, that's obvious why they okay. won't have that. Yeah. But otherwise, pretty much everything else is. Okay. Well, I'll definitely give that one a look. Yeah. Um, so uh, moving on, I found the concept. We found the concept happiness curve uh, very fascinating. Can you explain the concept to our listeners and how someone can apply um, this to their own situation and, and really define where they are on that curve? Well, I think the happiness curve was sort of my attempt to say that a lot of people defaultly think of, oh, look, I've got money, and if I make more money and spend more money, I should be more happy. We kind of think more is better in every case, and the reality is, actually, if you look at the psychology studies on the whole thing, they kind of determined, um, no, actually, that's not the case. With happiness in particular, if you start eating steak every night, it doesn't seem the same anymore. So that's the whole point of the happiness curve, is realizing that more is not indefinitely better all the time. There's a very... Um, fall down stage that happens later on like if you make gobs and gobs of money and spend said money that you'll find you're actually just as miserable as you were when you didn't have gobs and gobs of money so finding your own point on that curve is really tricky the sort of pinnacle point sort of the enough at the very top of the curve where you've got enough you feel happy about your life in generalized terms and you might do the odd treat here or there but generally speaking life's pretty good um, finding your own spot on that curve is really tricky, and I'd say the average North Americans actually passed enough in general. They're on the downward trend and don't even realize it. I would agree. I tend to find my place on that curve after I've passed it. It's yeah. always, I'm always looking over my shoulder saying, you know what? Happiness was about uh, $100 ago. <laughs> Pretty much. Pretty yeah. common. Yeah. In your book, you say uh, life is truly about trade-offs. Can you explain the balancing square? I love that that concept because the visualization is is beautiful. 
Well, it's funny, the balancing square, when you brought it up, I wrote the book quite a few years ago, and I actually haven't thought about that in a while. So I actually had to go look at my own copy and go, what the hell did I say about that? I've been thinking about that ever since I read it. I picture that balancing square constantly. Oh, it's sort of over my head, you know? And it's... Well, it's funny. It's just one of those things I kind of invented this spot to try to explain the concept of you can have everything you want in life, just usually not at all at once. And that's kind of what I was trying to explain in that whole concept of time, stuff, savings, experience. Yeah. And so... Uh, I, ironically, looking back on it now, that's actually an extremely good concept to explain the whole idea of you can have everything, but it's really hard to prioritize what you want to do first. Like, do you want an extra time off? Do you want to go on a good vacation? Do you want to buy a new suit or a new outfit? Or did you want to save some money for your retirement? And it's really hard to balance all this on a day-to-day -day basis. So it's realizing that everything in life is a trade-off. You can do bits of things, or you can do one thing really well and a little bit on the other ones, and it's figuring out that own personal balance thing to it. Um, personal thing was I, I cut back our spending really, really hard after a while and too much, yeah. <laughs> intentionally adding stuff back in. Tim, on the topic of spending in retirement, can you just tell our listeners why it's not about the income, but it's about the spending? Well, the big one is with uh, retirement planning is the big uh, driver towards getting there faster has everything to do with not per se your income, but more of what you're spending in a given year and how that relates to your income. So the bigger the spread between your income side and your um, actual spending, i.e. the more savings you have capable of doing in a given year is really what determines what how fast you get to real retirement. So if you can really ratchet that percentage up between the two, like, for example, save half of your take-home pay, uh, your, short, your trip to early retirement gets there a lot faster. And do you think it would be safe to say that you maybe you've built some uh, frugal habits that would help you survive on less money in retirement? Well, yeah, that's the other thing, too, is trying to minimize your spending on stuff and still get the overall satisfaction from it as you go along. The reality is a lot of people waste money pretty easily on stuff and don't even really consider about, well, is this really making me happy or is it an alternative on how to get there? Um, for example, I started making wine kits a while ago just out of sheer interest. I'm a chemical engineer by background and uh, discovered that I enjoyed the process a lot and then eventually started making uh, wine from fresh fruit. I would get from friends who would say, oh, I've picked my cherry tree. Do you want some? Okay, sure. And uh, ironically, after the fact, I didn't realize it until recently where we calculated out. I'm only spending like a dollar or two per bottle of wine. Um, so, Tim, one quote that really resonated was, um, a modest life is about wanting more of what you need, not really getting more of what other people tell you what you want. In your mind, why is it so important to focus on wants versus needs and what you feel is important to yourself, not others? Well, in reality, I think we get stuck into the idea that we need to spend money as per the ads and stuff, and everyone else has things around us. Like, my friend has an iPhone, I need to get one too, kind of concept that goes on a lot. Um, but to realize for you personally, to look at your own psychology and figure out what makes you personally the most bang for your buck happy. Uh, I know some people love to have their morning coffee at their store or something like that, which is all well and good, but just consider the fact of, well, what exactly out of experience do you enjoy the most? Is it actually the coffee or is it the social situation involved or what precisely is causing it? And then try to replicate that maybe on a lower cost basis that works for you. Like, for example, if it really is about the coffee, do you need to go to the store or should you just buy the particular coffee brand in question and make it at home? No, I, I think that's a great concept. Just, just on that same note, Courtney, uh, just the statement says, uh, Combine meeting needs with a bit of frugality, and you'll be amazed. 
whenever I do accomplish that, I am so my chest puffs out. I'm it's a win. <laughs> I, I, I'm so I feel like ten feet tall whenever I accomplish that. So I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Um, you had another quote in your book that. Uh, if more people bought into this, I think we'd be in a better place. If you think a starter home includes granite anything, you likely can kiss your retirement goodbye. And I think people have lost sight of what they need and what they want. It kind of goes back to what you were saying. But what's your position on home improvements in general and, and, and how that would impact someone's retirement? And when I say home improvements, as opposed to home repair. Yeah, I was about to make that little differentiation myself that there's home repair, which is, in my mind, stuff you need to do for maintenance of your house. And please, for the love of God, do not cut that stuff out. Yeah, <laughs> It'll no. cost you more in the long run. Yeah. So keep those two concepts separate. Um, home improvement, I think, is completely fine. It's uh, just in terms of concept, you have to keep a budget in mind and when you want to expect to get things done. For example, me and my wife have a habit of buying older homes that need some repair work. Yeah. Because we're like, you know what, typically I'm going to buy a home and I'm not going to be happy with the paint color anyway, so I might as well just be buy a house that needs a coat of paint in the first place. Yeah, not true. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> Rather than pay extra money for a house that's got a coat of paint, I don't particularly like the color and I want to change it anyway. So, yeah. uh, for example, we've been chip away at our house for about 10 years now with very small improvements over uh, a, a number of years on piecemeal things. So it's not to say it's cost and what's a reasonable sum every year to keep adding at. It. Uh, so, for example, for us, uh, we replaced flooring in most of the house and painted most of the walls. Uh, one of the big things we haven't done yet is tackle our kitchen. Yeah, that's a biggie. Yeah, I, I've been putting that off myself, but I think I'm, I'm going to have to do something about it soon. Well, for us, we kind of realized looking at our kitchen, it's like, actually, I don't mind the cupboards. I really just need a new countertop, new backsplash tile, and a few other things. I'm realizing that there's a few things about the cupboards that annoy me, but it's not worth the cost of gutting them. I'm better just to refinish them. No, I agree 100%. But yeah, no, I, I, I can live with the cupboards. That, that seems to be the bigger expense. So, um, Tim, with the, with the idea of changing your view of your job, because I think that's really an important thing because we spend the majority of our life working. So I really like this, this concept where you talked about um, four other factors that are more important or not more important, but should be considered before even thinking about pay. And I find that I find that phenomenal because I think there's a big misconception that it's pay over everything. So can you go over for our listeners what uh, each of these four factors are? And um, does considering all the four factors before pay impact the ability to retire early or is there a balance? I think there's a balance, but the four factors in question were about uh, interesting work, something you particularly like to do in some fashion or form or parts of it, uh, who your coworkers are personality-wise and who do you get along with, uh, and then uh, work-life balance, and they talk about benefits. Um, the reason I point all those out is this, is when it comes to actual pay, uh, depending what you do, you tend to be in a relatively tight range for a given job. So the reality is yeah, a thousand here or there is not going to make a huge difference to your early retirement plan. But actually being relatively happy at your job for a number of years in the interim is probably hugely important. So that's why I express the thing of ranking those other factors maybe higher than pay and then considering the fact of, well, what's going to work for you personally? Uh, I know one of the things I've always found is uh, good coworkers are worth their weight in gold for enjoyable experience at work. Like, honestly, <laughs> 
I've had bad coworkers and good ones, and I'd much rather take the good ones any day of the week. You know, I agree. I'll take a horrible boss, but great coworkers. Or even a less desirable job and coworkers that you absolutely love. Oh, yeah. Like, and the reality is, too, some degree of interesting work. Obviously, there's parts of every job that are not so pleasant, and frankly, that's just life. <laughs> as long as you find something enjoyable about your job, when you get up every morning dreading it, it's a big red flag of, mm, you probably should look for something else. And the time you spend there tends to be magnified if you hate it. You know, you might only physically be there eight hours, but in your mind, you've been there for ten. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I totally agree with that statement. Like, it will make it really good or really bad. And uh, life's too short to be miserable while you're trying to save for early retirement. It's my big thing. There's a quote in your book that says, don't work overtime unless you specifically ask to. And I know a lot of people, and I'm talking from a, a salaried position, who put in what's called FaceTime. They're certain this will further their career. I'm guessing you're saying in that statement that it's not worth it. It can be not worth it is maybe my statement in regards of that one. I didn't really expand on this too much in the book because I didn't want to turn it into a career book. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what I was getting at there is a little bit is I, I think people grossly underestimate the whole idea of like, what that overtime's on. Um, people think overtime in general is a good thing for salary positions where, oh, I'm putting in FaceTime, the boss sees me, blah, it's all good and stuff, and they'll promote me. And the reality is mm, not necessarily the case. When there's promotions doled out, it's usually more complicated than that. What they really want to know, at least I've found personally a lot of times, is can you deliver on the big pieces? So if it's a big project that your boss is really important to them, it might be worth, yes, putting a little overtime in the tail end just to make sure that thing gets done on time. Uh, to do it on regular tasks, I think, is relatively um, useless because all you're doing is banding the solution. You probably don't have enough resources in your uh, department as is. So that can just cause more problems in the long run because you're propping up a system that really can't be done by the number of people present. No, I, I agree with that. And that, that's probably 90% of salary people I work with. If, if you don't expose that there's a, a resource issue, it'll never get solved. Well, yeah, that's the thing. And so what are those? If you think fine people band-aid it far too long. So I'm not against overtime ever. It's just please be a little selective about when you're doing it. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, so, Tim, moving along, can you explain uh, the retirement savings 25 to 1 ratio concept for our listeners? Well, the 25 to 1 concept was where I was trying to explain for the average person that the whole idea of savings, uh, reducing your spending, is sort of a, has a huge payoff in your early retirement target, especially if you can do it on a permanent basis. And all that really is is sort of the inverse of the 4% rule, which is sort of widely circulated in uh, retirement things, which is based on the Trinity study, which says you can safely take out about 4% of your money every year. But sort of if you invert it so it's the other way around about spending uh, side of the house, it's just a 21, 25 to 1 ratio of for every dollar you reduce your spending by, you need 25 less dollars saved. And I love how you spun that into uh, the concept of owning a, a second car. You're, you're in your book, you say a car costs about $4,000 a year, and that'll equate to about $100,000 of retirement savings. So if you could own one car, you, you could forego saving $100,000 toward your retirement. Oh, yeah. That really put it in perspective. Yeah, people kind of mistakenly assume that reducing spending is not really going to help but they because they're only thinking in regards to the initial, oh, I can have a little bit more money now to save, but rally what you're really doing is if you can permanently lower that target, it just makes your getting there a whole lot easier. The, the car analogy really opened my eyes to it too. It was really, mm -hmm. really well done. So skipping forward to um, old age security and CPP, do you think those two will be there for future generations? 
Uh, CPP for sure. They revised the contribution rates back in what was 1994 or so, memory serves. Um, so that one's relatively unstable footing long term. Uh, the old age security, again, I think it'll be there, but, and here's the but. Uh, will it be in the exact same form it is today? Maybe, maybe not. The, the issue is the two programs are quite a bit different. The uh, CPPs, they actually take the money off our checks, put it aside, invest it, and then redistribute it out to retirees. The old age security one is quite different in regards to that one only gets out of the general government revenues. So the reality is it's the money the government takes in in income taxes this year that pays this year's old age security. So there is no savings pool there. So I think that one in the long term might uh, see some sort of reductions potentially or age increases, uh, as was tossed around here recently with the conservatives and then rolled back with the liberals. Uh, but the reality is it has everything to do with uh, long term wise. Don't depend on all of it is my sort of idea with old age security. I personally kind of reduced it in half. Yeah, no, I've seen that in your book. And I think that's a, a good uh, a good strategy. You you went into uh, some detail on, on how CPP is calculated. And that was a real eye opener for me. I had no idea that, you know, if you retired early, the when they're calculating your pensionable earnings for your, your benefit, they only take off I think your book said 15% of the years you've worked off the calculation. So if you retire early, you end up plugging in zeros for some of those years, which really draws your, your average down. Yeah, which is actually kind of part of the reason why my whole thing of uh, some degree of work where you have some income per year is actually pretty advisable even in early retirement just to help balance that number out a little bit. <laughs> yeah, because I, I had no idea. This is the first thing that really opened my eyes to it. The, you explained that quite well. And I'm thinking of retiring at 55. I may, depending on my calculation for CPP, I may do some semi uh, a semi-retirement angle just for that very reason. Well, semi-retirement also has the added benefit of if you're covering some of your uh, income in the first couple of years, like especially the first five or so. That's the really critical piece because it allows your uh, compounding to continue on your investments, hopefully, while you're not withdrawing the full amount. So it gives you a little added buffer there in case things go sideways. In your book, you talk about inflation. Do you think inflation would be offset by the fact that as people age, they spend less money, maybe they travel less? And how should someone incorporate inflation into the retirement planning? Uh, yeah, there is a degree of offsets. Uh, I remember coming across a research study that said that basically for older people in Canada, that the uh, CPP, the uh, Consumer price index was actually overstating their inflation rate by about a good half a percent. So it's not a complete write-off, one versus the other, but I do think that when people use 3 or 4% inflation, they're overly padding their numbers too badly, not realizing that there is that reduction in the long term, so you don't quite need as much as you think. Um, so what I've personally done is kind of aimed at more mid-range around 2% and maybe adjust down to 1.5, depending on your particular point of view. In there, you talked about how you didn't really like the concept of inflating your expenses for inflation, but rather reducing your returns on your investments. Yeah, it has to do with the calculation preference of you can do things in what's called real return, uh, real dollars. So you can do like uh, what your actual income should be in about 25 years, which would be a highly inflated versus today's value. I find that problematic because I don't relate to it as well. 
So just personal preference is what I do is instead I adjust my returns up front. So I'll take, if I'm assuming a 7%, I'll yank off 2% for inflation and then run the calculations on that. So that way I'm always looking at present dollars versus future dollars. And I took that advice when I'm talking about our retirement uh, financial planning with my wife. She can't stand it when I inflate future expenses and future income. She, she says, I don't even know what that means. Yeah, I totally understand her point of view. It's my own personal thing too. Of I have a hell of a time wrapping my head around it. But when I when I took your approach to it, she she all of a sudden op- was very open to discussing you know strategies and plans, and so I, I thank you for that that advice. It was very helpful for me. Oh, glad it was good. So I love this question you you have in your book. Uh, Despite our tendency to plan for what goes wrong, people often ignore pot- potentially the bigger threat. What happens if things go right? Do you really want to work another five years when you don't need to? Do you really want to continue the stress of a job you no longer like because you were too frightened to retire? I think people, you, another quote of that that you had in there is uh, a backup plan is planning to fail. So when when somebody asks you this question, you know, um, why would you say, you know, plan for what's going to go right and don't plan for what's going to go wrong? Well, I think it's a bit of a balancing situation of the reality is when you tend to do retirement planning, we tend to do a lot of negative reinforcement things of going, well, what if this happens? And what if this happens? And what if this happens? And inadvertently, we end up piling them on top of each other. So you end up in these odd situations of big Basically, for practical purposes in your retirement planning, you're assuming your house is going to burn down, your car is going to blow up, and <laughs> your pension will lose all of its value in the same year. And the odds of that really happening are spectacularly remote, right? You know, I agree with you 100%. <laughs> so what I was trying to point out with that whole phrase is the reality is you have to balance it a little bit with what could go right and take a little bit of risk when you're actually doing your plan. Nothing's guaranteed in life, including an early retirement plan. So the reality is... If you are flexible and smart enough to save enough to retire early, you're probably going to be just fine in retirement, realistically speaking. I am 100% guilty of this. I, I do exactly what you said. I just stack them all up there. You know, this these are all, this is the bad pile. The good pile's empty. Everything's going to go wrong. Well, I, and the thing is, I get it. It's a perfectly natural thing to be sort of pessimistic when initially doing your planning. But unfortunately, eventually you have to circle around a little bit and go, does this really make sense to stack all these? Yeah. <laughs> just think about, well... Did I really want to be over overinflated so badly? Because I remember I've read various encounters of people on chat uh, forums that have retired early, and a lot of them kind of say after about a year or two, say, you know what, I oversaved. And if you, you know, you hear these stories of these huge um, inheritance, and they're the result of somebody uh, who oversaved, really. Oh, no, it, it's very, well, the reality is this, when you're naturally a saver to start with, it's pretty easy to continue doing that. So the, when we think about retirement, it's like, come on, you've been saving for umpteen years prior to this, like suddenly you're going to lose your head and spend everything. <laughs> you're like, come on. True, true. Yeah, no, I agree with you. 100%. Um, so Tim, you have another quote in your book. It says, your need to protect your dreams, dreams of early retirement or other supposed impossibilities are fragile things that are too often crushed by others. So in your lifetime, what's been your experience with people who are skeptical of your early early retirement philosophies? Well, I think the reality is most people find the whole concept sort of intriguing, off-putting, or outright scary. Yeah. <laughs> and the reality is it's completely normal to have those reactions from people who have been spending everything they take in every month for years and years and years. So for them, the idea of early retirement just seems impossible because they can't imagine a lifestyle other than their own right now. And so 
there's a lot of hostility to generally pursuing early retirement. So I don't blame a lot of people who just do it under the radar. They don't tell anyone except for anonymous comments on blogs and stuff like that because they just can't bear the thought of having to deal with telling people about it. My own experience is, yes, it's actually being out there publicly about your uh, uh, your dreams and such is hard because there's a lot of doubters. There's a lot of people that try to pull you down. Like you read every story on the media about someone who's done something like this at all. And inevitably in the comments section, there's like 80% of it's hate. <laughs> I've not read those for sure. There is. So Tim, what have, what has your, your, your wife and two sons been in how what has their involvement been in this process or how are how on board are they or how supportive well actually it's kind of an interesting thing my wife has a totally different point of view on the whole early retirement thing she's never been interested in it in the way i have uh she's liked it for a different concept entirely she likes the security aspect of it she likes to know when the fridge breaks down she doesn't have to worry about do we have enough money saved or on the, to replace it or do we have to put on the credit card and how will i pay it off and all that stuff um, my kids, on the other hand, it's, they've just grew up with it. To them, this is normal. <laughs> so, Tim, we're now going to um, go into any books or resources that you may recommend to our listeners as well that have kind of helped you get along with your journey. A um, couple that are not king specific, so of course you have to read them with a grain of salt. <laughs> your Money, Your Life, I think, is one of those classic books that open you up to the concept and sort of the broad philosophy of early retirement and how... Uh, the big one I took out of that one was just the concept that you don't have to just mindlessly work thinking you'll be working forever, but rather a finite period of time. And that was just a, such a huge realization for me in my own life to realize that my career doesn't have to be this open-ended thing that goes on for 40 years, but rather it could be something that's 30 years or 20 years or whatever, right? Um, so that one I found really useful. And the other one I particularly liked was What Color Is Your Parachute for Retirement? Um, it's probably, again, a little bit US-centric. But it's good to walk you through those various thought processes of aspects of your life. Like, okay, what about your health? What are you going to do for interests? Uh, what do you want to do for giving back to community and other things like that? Just to make you think a little bit more about the – we tend to talk about early retirement. Everyone thinks about the money, and the reality is that's one part of it. There's a lot more else to think about as well. And um, for our listeners, we'll make sure to link those books into our show notes as well so our listeners can check those out as well. Sure. Um, what advice would you give your 20-year-old self now? My 20-year-old self now? Actually, I liked my 20-year-old self because he was smart enough to sign up for the matching contribution through work, even though he really didn't understand the whole bloody thing. <laughs> so he did oh, relatively okay. Um, but the only advice I'd go back in time and give my younger self is this is, I had a really fixated idea when I graduated university that I deserved a new car, that this was it. Yeah, I'm starting my career, I should get a new car. And looking back on it and going, that was kind of not really necessary. I was victim to the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Trevor and I just have discussed the same thing. Yeah, I was a victim to the, oh, and it puts you in a real hole. A well, real it does. Bad. It drains so much resources, especially when you're just starting out. You can bluntly use the money for other things. So it's just like putting a lot of money into a car that I would have maybe preferred to put into other things now that I think back on it. And the unfortunate thing is you have no other financial responsibilities, generally speaking, so you, you can easily get approved for that kind of loan. You know? Oh, yeah, that's the thing. Like, it it's, was ridiculously easy back then to do it. So. Yeah. And it's all relative, too. At the time, again, with no responsibilities as a young 20-year-old, a car is, is a good choice to spend your money on. Oh, no. And the thing is, in my case, the car wasn't exactly bad or anything because we ended up driving it for almost a decade. So, like, I got a good use out of the car. That wasn't the problem. The issue was I just assumed I needed a new one. Um, so, Tim, where can our listeners get a hold of your book? 
Uh, my book is available through Amazon for a physical copy, Amazon.ca or Amazon.com, either or. Uh, ebooks are pretty much most of the retailers, actually. I've lost track of the number of ones that are actually available <laughs> via. Uh, we tend to use Kobo ourselves, but uh, Amazon or Kobo would also be available for ebooks. And we'll make sure to put the links into our show notes as well so our listeners can get a hold of this phenomenal book. So, Tim, uh, what's your future plans? Are you planning another book, or, or can we expect new content on your website after you retire, sort of a different direction? or? Yeah, a little bit of a direction. Actually, one of the things I want to write about, and um, on the blog probably for the first little while to start with, and then actually probably want to put it into a book, is the actual psychological transition through retirement. Um, I find there's a lot of stuff about planning for it and not so much of the actual doing it and what all these little thoughts that run through your head and other things that come out of it uh, to realize that it's perfectly okay to have this mind gut churning fear at the end of it about submitting your notice in and it's normal. <laughs> I fantasize about that day myself. I know, but it's going to be scary too, right? I so agree, whole, yeah. I want to document that a little bit and then eventually write a book summation. I, it I look forward I think to that. There's a lot of people that go through it and there's, they don't know what to expect for being normal, and so they go through all this stuff, and they feel so odd and isolated. They don't really understand what's happening to some regards to them, emotionally speaking. Because um, you can't think about it. It's, you're giving up your career. It's one of your foundational pieces of most of your week. Like, yeah. big change. You know, just talking about your, your future, your book, and future books you're going to write. So you're an engineer by trade or education. My son is studying engineering. And one of the things they, they learn is to be very concise with their writing. And it, it, it almost takes a human element out of it. And I found your book very entertaining. Uh, it, it touched my emotions. It was it was a very easy read. Like, How did you acquire those skills to, to become that, that writer you are today? It's actually kind of funny. Part of one of the very reasons of actually wanting to retire early had all always to do with the fact that uh, I've always enjoyed writing. I've been doing it forever, basically, since young kid onwards. I've always written short stories and such. And so I remember in high school, I actually looked at various career options. I looked at being a writer, and I just determined that mm, it's a good way to slowly starve to death in Canada. <laughs> <laughs> writing novels for a living is a really, really bad idea as a career choice for monetary purposes. I so I, I picked uh, doing engineering, just thinking, well, I'm relatively good at math and science. And uh, that worked out really well career-wise, but sort of ironic that I've been practicing writing my entire life. And now I'm circling back for the ability to just write more. <laughs> Well, I'm looking forward to reading it because I really enjoy your style. Thank you. And as like your book, your website is filled with so many amazing articles. So can, t can you tell our listeners, where is your website about? How long have you been blogging? And what kind of content can they expect to find when they go visit their, your website? Um, my website is, I won't give you the full, full ad web address. It's horribly written. I had to go back. I'd redo it because it's just way too long. Just Google free at 45 and you'll find it. <laughs> We'll leave a link in our show notes. It is a long URL. I, I... Oh, I know. It's a horrible URL. Like, how'd I go back and redo that? <laughs> it's too late now. Uh, the blog is actually about 10 years old, almost this November, actually. It's, it's its 10-year anniversary. And uh, it's really about uh, happiness and early retirement planning. So what I try to balance on there is some of the, well, math and obviously things like that. You need to talk about retirement. But a lot of it tends to be more philosophy things of realizing, okay, what makes me happy? Why do I spend money on this? Uh, why do I want to do this versus this? Uh, how do I prioritize my various things I want to do in my life? And uh, so it ends up being this odd contrast of things I've swapped together over the years. And the other thing, too, is I had several guest bloggers over the years, too. So 
Uh, I can't remember the total article count, but I think we're over 2,000 articles now. Well, you know, when we were going to do this interview, I thought I, I was trying to sort of put my hands around what we could do it on. And your your content is, there's so much out there that I, I was almost thankful that you had a book that, <laughs> that, that I could wrap my hands around something. No, I, I know that's the problem because the reality is too. It, it, what's really interesting is if you go back to the blog archives and read various things for the years, you can actually see the evolution of some of my thought processes on things. Because uh, in the beginning, I was relatively clueless. Like I recently looked back actually at my very first early retirement calculations, and they're horrible. Like honestly, <laughs> difficult to follow. There's some assumption, assumptions in there. It's just it was like brutally badly done. <laughs> now that I'm on the other end of it. Um, Tim, how can people connect with you online? Uh, actually, the blog is probably one of the best spots, just commenting on that. Uh, other than that, my blog also has my email address, so if people want to get a hold of me via that way, that's probably the best way. I'm notoriously bad with social media, so I never check my Twitter and Facebook accounts. <laughs> Uh, I just close with this this last thing here. Um, our podcast is called Simple Money Solutions. Can you give our listeners one takeaway, preferably simple, that would help them move closer to an early retirement? Uh, start saving right now, and don't worry so much about the investment side of the house. Just get in the habit of saving, make it automatic, and take it off the top. So when your paycheck goes in the day afterwards, transfer some of that money out. And I'll say that as one of the key things of once that happens, everything else gets easier. <laughs> Okay, well, that, that sounds good. I, I, I like that. We, we'd love to get you back on post-retirement to see how sure. it's going. And definitely when your next book comes out, uh, we'd love to get you on to do a show about that. Sure. Thank you so much for joining us on the show today, Tim. Your insights and outlook on personal finance have been incredibly valuable. And I'm positive that our listeners will be walking away from this episode feeling inspired. Well, that's it for this episode. Thanks for listening. Please be sure to check out the show notes at livelifesimple.ca. Please give the show a rating on iTunes. And don't forget to check out all our social media platforms, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Until next week, keep it simple.